All right, John 1. Let's talk about John 1 for a few minutes. John 1 is always, uh, in the, the common lectionary, John 1 is always the scripture reading for Christmas morning, which is interesting because you would think Christmas morning you would want to go to like Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2. But, and as good as those are, and we do look at those like at Christmas Eve, um, John 1 is very, very explicit about what the theological meaning of the incarnation is. And so uh, let's look at that just for a few minutes. Of course, uh, you guys know this. Anybody who read John 1 for the first time, any of Jesus' uh, friends, followers, John's friends, as, as soon as they heard the first words of the Gospel of John, they instantly would have thought, he is intentionally echoing Genesis chapter 1 with that whole in the beginning bit. And of course he is. John is telling the story of Jesus, but he's telling the story of Jesus as the final climactic chapter of the story of the whole world, which begins at Genesis 1. When God creates the world, fills it with light, and then puts his children, his image bearers in that world. So I want to look just for a few minutes this morning at John 1 and the way it echoes Genesis 1, especially in these three areas of the word of God, the voice of God, uh, the light of God, and then the children of God. So, um, and I'll try to be as quick as I can here. So first of all, I mean, uh, the f- famous part about John 1 is this stuff about the word in verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through this word, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, back in Genesis 1, God creates everything by his word. God creates everything with the word of his mouth. He spoke and it came to be. He made it into existence. How should we understand that? How should you understand like the word, the voice of God? God is a spirit. He doesn't actually have a mouth. So he didn't actually say anything out loud. What is the word of God? Well, there's a couple different ways that this word here in would have been thought of in the ancient world. The Jewish way would have been to think of as it's Torah. It's God's will expressed in language. God uses his language to create the entire world, and then he uses his language to control the entire world. He gives the entire world a a description of his own character by giving them the law, by giving them the Torah. And now they know who God is because God has spoken his word into their lives with uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that has ongoing ramifications. When you open up Genesis to Deuteronomy, uh, the ancient Jews would have thought, you can actually hear God's voice by reading what he's written there or by hearing it read out loud in synagogue or in temple. In the pagan world, especially in John's day, it would have a little bit of a different meaning that some of you, some of you know this, that the, the word behind word there is the word logos. And in, in ancient philosophies, like Stoic philosophy, logos was the controlling principle of rationality. It was the principle behind the whole universe that kept everything going, that kept everything ordered. It's what made sense of the whole universe. It's how you knew that if you took a step, you wouldn't float off into space. You would stay stuck to the ground. It's how you knew that when you spoke words to somebody else, they could understand them in principle and talk back to you. Sort of principle of rationality behind the universe. And John, he doesn't disagree with this. Of course, the word of God is Torah. God does have a character that he reveals to us so that we can know. Of course, God is, Jesus is the fundamental principle of rationality behind the universe. Nothing makes sense without him. But what's more than this, for John, the word isn't this sort of abstract thing. The word is a person. 
Lewis and Clark I was teaching uh, several years ago, and um, this wasn't a conversation I had with a student, but I remember it was a, like a break between class, and um, a couple of girls were talking, and one of them was talking about their uncle who had just passed away, or passed away, I, I, I'm not sure how long, and I, d- I didn't butt into this conversation, but like any good human being, I uh, eavesdropped on it, and she was talking about how the family missed him. And she said, it was kind of dispassionate, she wasn't crying or emotionally things, she was kind of dispassionate. She said, the one thing that I don't understand is where his voice went. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say. And the, the other girl didn't really say anything about it. But she, I, you know, my first thought when she said, where did his voice go? Is, well, you know, he had a larynx and he had lungs that pumped air through his throat. And he had learned when he was a little kid how to manipulate his voice box and his throat to make sounds and his, you know, his teeth and his tongue and his lips to make sounds. And of course, now he's dead. And so none of that stuff works anymore. And so now he can't talk anymore. That's where his voice went. I didn't say that out loud, of course, but that was, you know, that's my, my, my first go-to in my head is the philosophical materialist explanation is it doesn't exist because his, his voice box doesn't work anymore. It's in the grave. But of course, what she meant was something deeper than that. There's something personal about a person's voice. Those of you who've lost loved ones before, you know this, is that you see a picture of them, and that's something. You know, I guess we kind of think like the visual is the most real, and it really isn't, though. Like you see a picture of a lost loved one, and that brings a certain sort of emotion. But it's not anything like hearing a recording of their voice. That's a certain sort of power because it's actually tapping deeper into who that person is in ways that pictures or even video can't. And so when John starts off by talking about how the creator God made this world and he did it with his voice, the Jews all agree with that, even the pagans to some extent, and not just Greek pagans. I I, I heard a discussion from the, the Dalai Lama one time about how John 1 is a, 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 a Jewish Christian description of Om, the, 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 the great Hindu incantation, uh, um, a mantra. It's the, the, it, when, when God wants to describe what it is that makes the world the world, he does it in a way that taps into all these Jewish and pagan streams, but also emphasizes that it's way more personal than that. We're not talking philosophy here. There's actually a person who made the world, who's at the heart of the world. And of course, reading on in John, we know that this is Jesus, the one who was with God and who was God. Both those things are true. He's both God, but he's somehow distinct from him in, in, in a way that our voices are. I say words right now, they go out of my mouth and I don't have any control over them. You make of them what you will. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't have control over what I say. I'm just saying they take on a life of their own. At the end of the sermon, several of you will, some of you will say, oh, that was really interesting about such and such a point. And then somebody else will say something completely different. And it's not infrequent that, and you know this too, if you've ever talked for more than five minutes, that people will say, oh, I get it, you mean X. And you think, I didn't say X at all, but okay, it works. Jesus and God, separate, together, of course, uh, one in nature, one in essence. Now I'm just using Trinitarian language. But there's this separate person who's, doing this. That was an interesting thing, and I just didn't, actually didn't even think about this until we just read this in the epistle reading a few minutes ago. I don't know if anybody caught this, but uh, there's this interesting line. Sometimes people think, 
Oh, well, the New, the New Testament uh, really didn't think about Jesus as God. You guys don't think this, but uh, uh, you'll hear this, you know, the Jesus seminar, you'll hear this around Easter time. Uh, the whole idea that Jesus is God was kind of like a later development, and then, you know, Christians would say, oh, that's what Jesus taught. But it's interesting, uh, in Hebrews 1, um, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying in verse 8, of the Son of Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He calls Jesus God. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, this is in, the, in verse 9, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So there's, there's God who's different than you. There's a God who's anointed you. You are God, but there's also your God who's anointed you. And Hebrews is radically monotheistic. And yet, um, there's space within this somehow in the worldview of those people who knew and walked with and eventually came to worship Jesus like the Apostle John to recognize that within the unity of God, there's this give and take, there's this ebb and flow. There's this word which goes out from God the Father and is not exactly him, but is with him in a sense that they are both identical. All right, enough philosophy. This word is the word that creates the world, but it's also the, world that, the word that, that recreates the world. And make no mistake about it, the target of the Gospel of John is the recreation of the whole world. God makes this beautiful world in Genesis 1. We humans, every single one of us, have done a dang good job of screwing it up. From Adam and Eve right on down to me. We've done a great job of screwing it up. God sends his son to recreate this. So what's going on in, in, in John chapter 1. God is determined to take back what was stolen from him in the Garden of Eden. Second to light, verses 4 and 5. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down to verse uh, 8 and 9. John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, so talking about Jesus, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The first thing that God creates in Genesis chapter 1 is light. So the first thing, not the first thing, the second thing after the word, that John calls Jesus in John chapter 1 is the light, the true light. Light's important. I mean, the reason why God creates light first is that nothing else makes sense without it. Like God could have created squirrels, but if there's no light and you can't see the squirrels and the squirrels can't see anything, it does you no good that they exist. Light gives us understanding. It allows us to see the world around us. It allows us to have knowledge. If you deprive human beings of light, they frequently go insane. Light makes sense of everything else, and that's the way that John is using this word is Every human being gets this light. Every human being gets understanding because God created light so that humans could see. Now, to call Jesus the one true light, though, means that he gives ultimate meaning. So I look back to see who's sitting out here. I look at my watch to see what time it is. I look at the TV to watch the football game. This is how I get knowledge. All of these, though, are just shadows and echoes of the true knowledge that we get from looking at Jesus. The knowledge of Jesus is ultimate reality in ways that a football game can never be, or even the, the man-made time on my watch could ever be. Jesus is the one true light that gives actual, real, ultimate knowledge. Everyone is searching for this light. One of the verses we sing when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we sing a couple times this Advent, it's a great Advent hymn, is come desire of nations, come. It's a, it's a line from Isaiah, but it's this great recognition that every single human being wants Jesus. Now, they might not want specifically Jesus, but this light 
They crave. We want understanding. And you might even say, I don't believe in God. You're still craving transcendent knowledge. You're still craving ultimate reality. You want more than the football game or the time on your watch. You want, every human being wants more than this. And the confession that Jesus is the true light is the confession that there's no way to get ultimate transcendent reality, ultimate knowledge without him. Two results of recognizing that Jesus is the true light. There's a gazillion of these. I'm only going to burden you with two of them this morning. All teachers, all gurus, all your favorite methods, all your favorite talking heads, your favorite news programs, all your favorite YouTube personalities, all of them, it's great that we have those things. It's good. I have, a, I have favorite theologians. Um, I have theologians that I love that my kids make fun of me for loving so much. And uh, I have to be careful, though, sometimes because they give really good light, but they don't give the true light. They, they, they can reflect the true light, and all the best of them do, whether it's a YouTube personality or, or a guru or a, a favorite theologian. They reflect true light, which is good, but they aren't the true light. They cannot give ultimate knowledge. Knowing them does not give transcendent experience like knowing Jesus does. It's this great line by Karl Barth. That's two sermons in a row that I quote, I've quoted last night. I've, I've quoted Karl Barth. And, and I, my uh, fundamentalist self when I was a kid would have been appalled by the fact I'm quoting, quoting Karl Barth. But Karl Barth says this. It's, it's, he's talking about this, this sense of the true light, and he says, when the sun rises, you put all the lamps out. And what he means is, with the arrival of Jesus, all of these individual lights, I've got this lamp here, which is my favorite YouTube channel. I've got this other lamp here, which is N.T. Wright, so a great theologian. And I, I put those out, because those can only ever approximate the one true light. And Jesus makes the rest of them dim, so dim that they're not necessary to have on. Sometimes Christians do, well, everybody does this. They find their favorite method or their favorite diet or their favorite you know, guru, their favorite talk, their favorite podcast, and they lock into that. And it's actually the voice of God. It's the one true light is Jesus Christ, which if, you would just, if we would just look at him, we would see how dim those other lights are. Second thing, Jesus doesn't just provide religious light. I'm not talking this morning. This is the three sermons in a row. I've, I've uh, ridden this horse too. We're not talking about religion here. I know we're sitting in a religious space. I'm not saying that, you know, you can go, listen to Joe Rogan for whatever it is you listen to Joe Rogan for. I don't know. I don't listen to him. But, you know, uh, watch football to get whatever you get out of football. Uh, follow your favorite uh, recipe person on, uh, uh, on, on the internet to get your favorite recipes. Jesus, though, he is the religious light. That's what religion is for. And I'm saying that, no, Jesus is the one true light. That means that Jesus is the light of everything, which means that it's possible in principle and should be in practice that you have a theology of recipes, that you have a theology of comedy, that we have a theology of golf, that we have a theology of work and vacation, theology of music, theology of shopping. Because if Jesus is the one true light, only Jesus makes sense of all these things. Any category that you can think of, only Jesus can possibly make ultimate sense of it. I'm not saying, do you understand what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying like you don't need to look up recipes online anymore because you can just go to the Bible and find recipes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the meaning, the ultimate transcendent meaning behind the gift of food or the gift of golf or the gift of comedy or the gift of work or the gift of sex or the gift of vacations. The ultimate true meaning behind that is the very nature of God himself, which you can only know through the one true light, Jesus Christ. There's this great line by C.S. Lewis. Again, 
uh, again with the Lewis quote. This is the very last line of his essay. You can find this in The Weight of Glory. The essay is, is theology poetry? And some of you will have heard this line before. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Just a fantastic line. The thing about Christianity is you don't believe in Christianity because you need Christianity, just Christianity. You believe in Jesus because if you believe in Jesus, you get everything else thrown in. Everything else starts to make sense. The deep frustrations that you feel when the recipe doesn't work out. The throwing your golf club in the lake when you shank a shot on the eighth hole. All of that stops because now you've got a deep theology, of, a deep Christology of golf, which makes sense of all these things. It makes sense of what golf is about and recipes are about and all the rest is about. Jesus is the one true light and he alone makes sense of everything. Finally, there's children. In Genesis 1, the apex of creation is God creating these people who look like him. This is what having kids is a, a reflection of. You get married and you have kids, and that intentionally designs what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and in their infinite, intimate love with each other did by creating people who look like them. God creates children, Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 1, and here at the end of John chapter 1, that's also his goal. Well, there's actually there's one son that you can't, start the, you can't start the talk of the children of God without starting with the Son of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glories of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's ultimately one son. God has one son, and that's Jesus, the one who came and dwelt among us. His coming and dwelling amongst us, though, makes it possible that you and I can be daughters and sons of Jesus as well, in him. If you've been united to Jesus Christ in faith, that makes you a child of him. It's what John is talking about in verses 12 and 13. It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's only one son of God, but in that son of God, we become daughters and sons of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How does this happen? How do human beings become children of the one true God? Well, there's two different ways that are described here. They're actually compatible. They aren't, they aren't contradictory as much as a bonehead theological conversation would make you think they are. First of all, in verse 13, people become the children of God because God decides that people are going to become the children of God. This happens. People are born Born as children of God, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood. That's kind of, an, that's kind of a, a Greek way of thinking about uh, the biological act of childmaking. Uh, uh, um, there, there was a notion, not everybody, that, that, that blood was mixed within the woman. The blood of the man and the blood of the, the woman were mixed to create this new human being. It's not a biological thing. It doesn't happen by any sort of like explainable means. You can't test the birth of God's children in a test tube. It also, it also doesn't happen through the will of the flesh, he says. This is a description of sexual desire. This, is, this doesn't happen. God's children are not born in a moment of passion. This also doesn't happen because of the will of man. It's not a human decision to become God's child. You can't muster up the faith. That's why Luther says in his explanation of the third article, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit. He says, what does he say, Reef? Uh, I believe that I'm sorry, I put Reef on the spot, but I blanked for a second and I don't have it written down in my notes. <laughs> sorry, Reef's my go to. 
I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit's called me by the gospel. I, can't, I, I believe that I can't by my own reason or strength, by my own brain power or by my own power of will, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit's called, called me by that. That's what verses 13 is saying. If you believe in Jesus, it's because God has done this in your heart. He has worked this in you. This is totally compatible, though, with verse 12, which says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We must receive him. You can't receive him unless he himself does the calling, Luther says in the third article, so that you can receive him. But still, you must receive him. For those of us who are big fans of sola gratia, which is the Lutherans and the Reformed and the like, especially when they're in kind of a gung-ho stage about this, will sometimes think, well, you can't receive him. And so, but you can't receive him. Only he can give himself to you. And so you don't need to receive him. And this actually is not the case. There's this sort of attitude, kind of a snotty attitude that you'll hear some people, you know, they'll, they'll listen to a Billy Graham a sermon at the end. He invites people to believe in Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. Oh, that's just decision theology, they'll say. It's just too one-sided. It's, it's, it's not biblical. It's not the way that John talks about salvation. Yes, we are not saved by our own will or the will of flesh or the will of blood. We're only saved by the will of God. And yet, this is for those who receive him, for those who place faith in him. Reach out and take hold of him. It's one of the messages of Christmas is to trust in him. Seek his face. Make a personal relationship with him, a personal priority of yours to know and to latch on to him and to give him the glory for it, to say, I can't do this. I can't believe in you on my own, but I am going to believe in you. It's this great Christmas hymn that we don't sing. Uh, it's not in our hymn books, but I kind of grew up with the, 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 the hymn, thou, thou didst leave thy throne. It was about the incarnation. God left his throne to become a human being like us. And the chorus goes like this. So come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. As long as we understand verse 13, it's safe to say to Jesus, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for you. I believe in you. I want you. I trust in you. I lay hold on you because you've laid hold on me. That's the message of John 1. That's the message for Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for allowing us because of that to choose you too. Thank you for giving us your word, Jesus. Thank you for giving us your true light, Jesus. Thank you for making us in your son, Jesus, your daughters and sons by faith in you. We pray this in his name. Amen.